0: Videos, podcasts, Jewish ideas, from the Shalom Hartman Institute. From the
1: Lubavitch perspective, any tampering with your beard is considered a gross violation of Jewish law, uh, and also socially is completely unacceptable. I mean, for someone to shave their beard, that means that they're fundamentally off the, the proper path. Internally, I was kind of moving away from Lubavitch and Orthodox Judaism. I called my mother the day that I shaved my beard because I was scheduled to come for Shabbat that a few days later, and I didn't want to have a huge emotional scene, you know, in, in Crown Heights in my parents' doorstep. So I called her up to warn her that I shaved my beard. She basically hung up the phone on me. She called me back again and said, you know, okay, you want to shave your beard, you don't want to be Lubavitch, you want to do your own thing, no problem. Come over on Sunday when I'm not home, pick up your stuff, and, you know, that's the end of it. You're on your own. Don't come back home. I I was really shocked and Pained by her response, well not completely shocked, I had some idea that she would respond very forcefully to to my change. I, I just didn't come home, I didn't speak to my mother at all. You know, I graduated college, I started a new job, I got a new apartment, whatever, all of this was, you know, without my parents' involvement.
2: There are lots of things the secular world gets wrong about ultra-Orthodox Jews. Big things and little things. Every time there's an article in the New York Times or a Netflix show about that world, Orthodox people tend to jump on those mistakes. They're not wrong. And Lord knows it's also an issue the other way around. There are plenty of things that Orthodox Jews get wrong about the secular world. That den of iniquity and one-night stands and anti-Semitism but this is an episode about the one thing that everyone seems to get wrong on both sides of the divide. Orthodox Jews believe that it's common, and the secular world also definitely believes that it happens. Even us OTD people tend to believe it, though we should know better. If you need a refresher, OTD means off the derech, off the right path, the Orthodox path. This story we all believe It's about the consequences of straying from that path.
3: You know, your family's going to tear their clothes. They're going to sit Shiva for you. They're never going to speak your name again. If you're going to call the house, they won't pick up the phone. That's the story.
2: The idea that those who leave orthodoxy are permanently and completely disowned by their families and their community. The
3: vast majority of the OTD people I know did not experience this. It no longer represents what's actually happening. Why does the story persist?
2: That's the question I want to answer because I'm not just here to correct the record on some minor misconception. I want to get at the heart of how we think about these boundaries of orthodox communities, boundaries that matter to all of us, whether we're inside or out or somewhere in between.
3: That mythology is really useful. (laughs) That's why it's not going away. I'm
2: Naomi Seidman. And this is episode two of Heretic in the House, a podcast from the Sholem Hartman Institute about the stories we tell of Orthodox Judaism and the people who leave it. This episode, shunning.
3: for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org.
2: Before we get into this show, I want to give one important caveat. This episode is mostly about people who left their communities before they had children, before the question of child custody enters the conversation. Custody complicates things immensely because Hasidic communities have very specific ideas about how children should be raised. Things can get pretty ugly pretty quickly when children are involved. For now, I'm going to focus on those of us who got out without that complication. Let's start with Zalman Newfield, who we met last time. Sure. So I should say... In 2020, I- Zalman published a book called Degrees of Separation, where he interviewed 74 ex-Hasidic Jews about their experiences.
1: I was looking at, in particular, the Lubavitch and Satmer community.
2: Out of all these people... Only one or two were shunned in any kind of absolute way, say by their families or friends cutting off all contact with them. It absolutely surprised me. I thought
1: that I would find, like other scholars have found in other strict religious communities, whether it's the Amish or whether it's a Seventh-day Adventist, whether it's, you know, Scientologists, there's often a harsh system of established practices of shunning, of excommunicating, of you know, publicly rejecting the people that leave the community.
2: He was expecting to hear that in the strict Hasidic communities the people he interviewed had left, some kind of shunning was going on, and the people he interviewed also believed that was happening, even if it hadn't exactly happened to them. I searched very hard uh, for several years to try
1: to find someone who grew up Lubavitch or Satmer and left, whose family ended up sitting
2: Shiva for them. Shiva. That was the ultimate specter. If you don't know, Shiva is the name for the traditional period of mourning that many Jews observe after the death of a close relative. It's called sitting Shiva because you're supposed to spend most of it actually sitting, receiving a long string of people who are trying to comfort you while you sit on a low chair with a torn shirt. When you sit Shiva for a living person, the message is absolutely clear. There's no more direct way of telling a family member that they're dead to you. Zalman speculated that maybe it was something that used to be done, but times have changed, partly because there are just so many more young people leaving. But there's another reason that the Orthodox community mostly isn't excommunicating its heretics. In the past few decades, Orthodox Jews have gotten very interested in psychology and therapy and things like dyslexia and anorexia and trauma. There's also a lot more talk about emotional or physical abuse. If you can blame someone's choice to leave the true path on psychological issues rather than on wickedness or sin, that makes it easier for you to forgive them, to forgive us. This is how leaving Orthodoxy goes from being a sin to being kind of a symptom. Not a choice, but a misfortune.
4: In other words, if you allow yourself to think, oh, there is a psychological problem. They come from a broken family. There was abuse in this child' history. So then we don't have to question our core beliefs.
2: Maybe that's why people aren't sitting Shiva anymore. They don't have to.
4: I'm Yitzchak Schoenfeld, otherwise known as Isaac.
2: Almost everyone else I'm talking to on this podcast is OTD. So I should make it clear that my friend Yitzhak is not.
4: I've lived in Borough Park all my life, except for a short stint of four years being a yeshiva in Mexico.
2: He's totally and entirely from, which is what observant Jews call themselves. He lives in the heart of a very religious neighborhood, the same one I grew up in. But even a place like Borough Park, Brooklyn, has its mavericks, and Yitzhak is definitely one of them.
4: You have to keep Shabbos. You have to eat certain foods address uh, a certain way, think a certain way. If you are living a restricted life, it has to have a meaning and a purpose. It has to have a truth to it as
2: well. A society so sure of its ultimate truth has to find some way of explaining why anyone would want to leave it. The reason why you see so many people abandoning it is
4: because their boat was rocked. They must be slightly meshuggah. They must be slightly insane. They have, must have some psychological problem You know, they came from a broken family, or abuse, or some dyslexia, or they're gay, etc. They were pushed out of this wonderful truth. I think that it's wrong, and I think it's disrespectful as well.
2: Yitzhak rejects these psychological diagnoses, even though he understands why his community makes them. He doesn't think of himself as all that different from the ones who left, even though he stayed. It's even a
4: disservice to people to think that there is only one truth, And we have it. Do I know that there is a God or there isn't a God? Do I know that if there is a God, that he gave us an instruction booklet? And if he did give us an instruction booklet, is it the one called the Torah? I don't know the truth.
2: So, psychologizing heresy makes it easier for Orthodox communities to not turn their backs on their wayward children. But there's another possibility, which is that the whole sitting Shiva for your wayward child was never really practiced as much as it was preached. Maybe it's been largely theoretical for a long time, a boogeyman haunting the OTD story, a big stick that hangs over the people who are thinking of leaving. When a friend of mine told her parents she was a lesbian, they sent her to talk to their rabbi, who warned her that if she didn't repent of her evil ways, her parents would sit Shiva for her. She just laughed at him. She said, look, I'm a rabbinic scholar, don't tell me my parents are supposed to sit shiva because I'm a lesbian. Where do you get your knowledge of Jewish law from anyway? Fiddler on the Roof? So maybe that's where we all got that piece of ethnic lore from. From shows like Fiddler on the Roof, where Tevia shuns one of his daughters for marrying a local Gentile. Or from Unorthodox, where the grandmother hangs up on her OTD granddaughter when she calls from halfway around the world. Those stories about Orthodox Jews, Well, Orthodox Jews started to believe them, even when they should have known better. And we did, too. That big stick, that boogeyman, that's one reason I had a hard time getting some of my OTD friends to talk to me on tape. But even for those who actually did get Sean Direct's communicated, there's a disconnect between how they experienced being cut off and how that experience is heard in the secular world. Izzy is one of those who was cut off very deliberately by his parents. That might have something to do with the fact that he did agree to being recorded.
5: Uh, My name is Izzy Posen. I am the oldest of 10. When I left, I was 20. All of my siblings were 17 and younger, and the youngest was a newborn baby. Izzy lives in England,
2: studies philosophy and science.
5: I've recently graduated from the University of Bristol with a master's in physics and philosophy. He makes podcasts. He also teaches physics. High school level physics. On YouTube. Yeah.
2: In his late teens, Izzy came out as an unbeliever. His parents had what to say about that, but Izzy stuck to his guns, and not just for personal reasons, but for philosophical ones.
5: It's not because I don't know what I'm doing, or you know, I'm thinking properly about the Olam Haber, and the world to come, and how bad it's gonna be in Gehenna, in hell, it's because I've really, really thought about it carefully, I've read, I've researched, I've spoke with people, and I've came to the conclusion that Haredi Judaism is not true. its belief system is not the right way to think about the world and that was a big big threat i was beloved by my siblings they looked up to me
2: izzy's parents were just terrified that this was the beginning of a chain reaction
5: in their eyes if i'm going to have a relationship with my siblings they're going to be influenced by my heresy
2: that all of them are going to follow their big brother out the door
5: so i was cut off from my siblings and it was incredibly painful.
2: His friends in the secular world were horrified to hear about this, but unlike his secular friends, he gets it.
5: When we make the decision to leave for whatever reason, when we doubt, when we become fry, whatever it is, there are human beings that our parents who had, rightly or wrongly, had a very different vision for us, live in a community in which what we are doing brings them a lot of shame, live in a community that all their life has told them that what we are doing is wrong, and think, based on their worldview, that what we are doing is harmful to ourselves. And it is, in a very real sense, what we do usually is harmful to the family, for the family name, for Shaduchim, of our siblings, and so on.
2: Shaduchim means arranged marriages in a marriage market where your value goes down if there's a stain in your family history. Anyone in your immediate family that left That's a huge stain. That's part of what we all grew up with, the threat that we'd be ruining the marriage prospects of other people in our family. Izzy sees what his parents are doing as a way of trying to stem the damage that he's caused, protecting the future of those younger brothers and sisters. This doesn't mean he agrees with them or regrets what he's done, but he sympathizes with it. Remember, Izzy is the exception here the one whose family actually carried out the threat to cut him off. But as Alman found, most of us, even from the most insular Hasidic communities, maybe we were threatened too. But when it came right down to it, we weren't entirely cut off. After eight months,
1: I decided that, you know, enough is enough, I should try to go back home and um, resume some kind of family relationship. It, it was perm at the time, so I told my father that I really want to come home for perm to see everyone. My father suggested that since it's perm anyway, maybe I should put on a fake beard because people often, you know, little kids, they wear fake beards to dress up as mortify or whatever. So it would be within the spirit of the holiday. And I told him, no, I don't want to wear any fake beards. Like, this is who I am, and, and this is how I want to come. He asked my mother about it, and my mother didn't say yes, and she didn't say no. So he said, OK, that's that's as good as it's going to get. You, if you want to come, come. So I did. And my mother, she told me, she's like, I, I, don't, I don't recognize you. I don't, I don't know who you are. This is not my son. I spent a lot of time trying to tell her, no, this is the same son, I haven't changed, I'm not a different person, I'm just not fundamentally a different person, I'm just, they look a little bit different.
2: Nobody sat Shiva for us. Most of us are dealing with an in-between sort of situation. We were cut off and then not. Some family members shunned us and some didn't. We could come back for certain occasions but not others or we had to come back home wearing a costume. The details vary from case to case, but there's also something a lot of these in-between situations have in common. I want to talk about this in-between situation because my suspicion is that people outside our small OTD circles don't even realize it exists. My friend Lauren Stoss has certainly lived it.
3: I grew up in Flatbush, in what I now think of as a yeshivish community, but at the time we would have just said, oh, we're just from.
2: Lauren is an oncology nurse, and she writes a lot, too. I met her at an OTD meetup in Berkeley. And now I am not religious. She reads a lot of books about people who leave fundamentalist religions, and she picked up this term. Soft shunning? Soft shunning. Yeah. Here's an example that happened to her.
3: You know, I have a cousin who invited me to her wedding. I love her very much.
2: It turns out that right as she got this invitation,
3: Lauren had a big life update of her own. She called me to talk to me about the wedding, and I had just gotten engaged to my wife. And I said, oh, I'm also engaged. She said, oh, would you maybe not mention it at the wedding? Because I don't know if people know about it, and I don't really want this to be like your coming out party, my wedding. I don't know anyone who ever had a coming out party. Uh, (laughs) I kind of want one. (laughs) Maybe I should have one now. She didn't shun me. She didn't say, don't come. I didn't even suggest bringing at the time my fiance. It wasn't a shunning moment. It was a request. And I had to really think about it. What am I going to do? And I said, you know... I'm not gonna lie to anyone. I won't get up on a table, I won't announce it, but I'm also not gonna lie about my life and what I'm doing. Because I was imagining, and you know this happens, a thousand people coming over to you saying, Nabach, how old are you? Like, do you want, what are you interested in? What kind of boy do you want? You know? <laughs> and they mean, well, this is coming from a place of love, also a place of nosiness, but a place of love. That's the collectivist culture, right? We have to get everyone married.
2: She would be expected to listen to all that rigmarole and absorb all that pity without saying, actually, I'm not single. I'm engaged
3: to my girlfriend. And I offered to her. I said, would you prefer it if I just didn't come? I don't want to ruin your wedding. And she said, yes. Please don't come. Is that a shunning?
2: Well, maybe. Because if she said anything at all about a gay relationship, she would be treating her cousin's wedding like a coming out party, whatever that is. And that would be selfish. That would hurt people, shock them, really.
3: That's what I think of when I think of soft shunning.
2: If hard shunning means zero contact with family members, like in Izzy's case, soft shunning means you're connected to your family, but not very often, and under rules of engagement that are pretty strict, even if they're mostly unspoken. It's important to Lauren that we recognize that soft shunning is still shunning, because there are so many rules that go along with it. You're welcome to be here but not really you, not your whole self. There's something else. The soft shun is always shadowed by the hard shun. The hard shun is there. It's still an implicit threat, and one way it works is to make the soft shun seem merciful by comparison. We're gonna
3: sit Shiva for you, but only if you don't do this XYZ thing. In
2: other words, we could be getting cut off, but we're fortunate because we're only getting soft shun. So
3: I told her she has to wear a skirt in the house. I told him he has to wear a yarmulke, but I'm telling him he can
2: come. But the specter of the heart shun is always there right behind it. Exactly. So we're made to feel that we should be grateful that our parents aren't sitting Shiva for us, that things aren't worse, That's how the shadow of the hard shun works, to make the soft shun feel like a mercy, like you're the beneficiary of some privileged exception to the truly horrible rule. OTD people who are soft shunned aren't the only ones who feel like they're the exception. Their families also end up feeling exceptional, and there can even be a touch of pride in that, in the mindset that other families may sit shiva for their kids, but we don't. We value our children. We understand the family bond. We love our children, come hell or high water. We'll be there for our children. We'll keep in touch, whatever the rabbi has to say, whatever God has to say, whatever Fiddler on the Roof has to say. And in the back of their minds, the thought that maybe, just maybe, some measure of acceptance will even persuade their straying children to come home. Because Orthodox Jews aren't so bad, even if Netflix thinks they are. And because inside every Jew, however far away they've gone, is that Jewish spark. No matter where we've run off to, no matter where we ended up, hope for our return never dies. That's how it is. If it's so beautiful, though, why am I calling it soft shunning? because it's not so beautiful. In fact, a lot of us hate it. One OTD friend of mine I talked to about this episode was pretty clear about that. Shunning? I wish I was shunned, he said to me. If I were being shunned, I could be on your podcast. What my friend meant was that if he were totally shunned, he'd be free, because soft shunning always comes with rules of engagement. These unwritten rules lay out exactly how it might happen that someone who abandoned the Orthodox world might be conditionally allowed back for a meal, or a wedding, or Lord help us, an entire holiday. We may have thought we were escaping all those Orthodox rules. In some ways we did, but not entirely. Because it turns out that along with those rules, there are some reserved just for our special case, the case of the wayward child coming back for a visit, The case of the heretic in the house. Those rules aren't always spoken. You can't look them up. But they're there, spoken or not.
1: My father asks me, you know, did I put on tefillin today? It's very awkward because I don't put on tefillin, you know, but I don't want to make my father feel bad. You know, the, the man's been through enough. Do I, you know, sit there putting it in his face? Oh, yes, I didn't put on film today, whatever. I eat at this restaurant that's not kosher, you know? If someone asks you a question, that means that they're ready to hear the answer. If they're not ready to hear the answer, they shouldn't ask the question. I think sometimes they may not even fathom what your answer is gonna be. In that sense, they couldn't possibly be prepared to hear your answer, you know? or they know what your answer might be and they're really hoping it's the other thing, you know? And when you tell them the truth, it could be deeply, you know, painful to them.
2: There's a kind of protocol in place when we talk to relatives still in the communities. Let's call it the orthodox don't ask, don't tell policy. It's the details we leave out when our parents ask us how life is going, the questions that they know they don't want to hear the answers to, That's an important piece of what soft shunning looks like in practice. It isn't just the big sins that you can't bring up at your cousin's wedding, being gay, having a non-Jewish partner, being an atheist, desecrating the Sabbath. What makes it so hard is that just about everything is off limits. All the details of your new secular life that have no place in an orthodox conversation. You bought a house where? You do what for a living? You voted for Obama? And the worst possible thing you can ever bring up is the simple fact that you've left the Orthodox world. It's just rude to mention it. Even if everyone knows the story, or if they don't know the story, they can immediately see it because even putting on a long dress can hide all the little tells of a secular life. What this means is that what used to be all about conforming to a bunch of rules, well, now it's more about things we have to conceal. So why bother? Izzy, and he was hard shunned, he realises now that he could have avoided being cut off by his family if he had played the game the right way, if he had been a little less arrogant and young and honest and in your face on the way out. He's still hoping that it's not too late to fix that up. As he sees it, there's something about Orthodox Jewish psychology that could work in his favour.
5: People really want to believe that you're from... It's very painful for people to believe that you've consciously rejected it. It challenges them. And people really want to believe that deep inside you're from. And I've learned, you know what, I'm going to let people believe that. And I'm not going to do anything too public to say explicitly my level of religiosity. So soft
2: shunning is a kind of compromise, a kind of equilibrium. And there are plenty of reasons for both OTD people and their Orthodox families to take that path to avoid the alternative of total rupture. And yet, there are plenty of us who don't feel like it's good enough, who aren't grateful for getting this don't ask, don't tell. The friend I mentioned, who told me that he wished he was shunned, maybe you're thinking, well, if he wishes they were shunning him, why doesn't he just cut them off? Why do we go on, so many of us?
3: Yeah, the idea of being free of the relationship that is painful is almost a fantasy in a situation like this, you know? And it's a little bit easier when the other person does the cutting so you don't have to feel the guilt of having done it.
2: It's also about who the heroes in the story are and who the villains are.
3: (laughs) You know, now I have to deal with the reality. like, Oh, I'm the one who stopped talking to them.
2: Is it us who broke our parents' hearts? who selfishly gave up a life of meaning to chase the empty vanities of this world? Or is it them, those old world patriarchs threatening us with excommunication, unable to give us the freedoms we deserve? Behind those rules about how you present at your cousin's wedding, there's a mighty battle being waged. Not about who's right and who's wrong, those old categories, but who's loving and who's hateful about what family means and what love means and who really has it and who really feels it. Maybe that's why we do it. Pick up the phone, get on a plane to show that we're the good guys in the story. And that's why they open that door or pick us up at the airport to show that they are.
3: We didn't become the thing that they said we would be, selfish, right? We are still involved in family, family still matters, community still matters to me, blah, blah, blah.
2: But does it have to be blah, blah, blah? Do we have to take what we get now that we're OTD if we couldn't accept it when we were still religious?
3: Cut the cord that's choking you, right? That's an expression that I think of a lot.
2: Many of us think about it a lot. Some of us have managed to cut that cord, but lots of us haven't. And what does it look like anyway? You don't go to the wedding, and for a year or two, maybe there's no contact. It's fine. It's great. But then someone picks up the phone, and the next thing you know, you're in the middle of it again. The middle of this in-between situation where you just keep going because, as Lauren said, blah, blah, blah. The relationship
1: is circumscribed. It's, it's limited in some way. It's not the kind of full, absolute, unconditional embrace that we would hope that all people would have with their families. When they come back home, the women wear uh, more conservative clothing and everything, they cover up. Married women cover their hair, the men put on a yarmulke, maybe even more Hasidic garb. It was very upsetting especially for my wife, who is very put off by all of these restrictions. It came to a point where it was just too much for her, and it was also you know, upsetting to me that I had to put on what essentially was a kind of costume just in order to get through the door. Shouldn't the family feel a need to respect who these people have become and not demand that they wear a skirt
2: or put on a yarmulke or what have you? People live with these relationships, but you know, it's easier for some people than for others.
0: It's literally a line in my film, Don't Ask, Don't Tell.
2: This is my friend Pearl Gluck. Pearl's a filmmaker. She directed Divan, a film about her Hungarian Hasidic roots and a couch that had been in her family. I was telling a story about Hasidim who
0: survived the Holocaust and who were still telling Hasidish stories but were not religious anymore. And I was going to use my great-grandfather's couch as a structural form.
2: Pearl certainly knows what we're talking about, this soft shunning. And she follows these same rules of engagement. But she just accepts it. Not just accepts it, actually. She talks about how fortunate she feels that her family welcomes her back to the extent that they do. As she sees it, Some of that is luck or privilege, that her family's not as extreme as some others are, that she's not intermarried. If I wanted to transition, if I wanted to be with
0: women, if I was in an abusive family, God forbid, I literally left for none of those reasons. I just wanted to study, to travel, and I just wanted to get out there.
2: She knows perfectly well that her relationships with her family are on their terms, but she puts on the skirt, she drives back to Brooklyn, she does it. And no, she doesn't feel any compulsion to have it out with her family. That is not
0: on my to-do list. My interest is to keep the conversation going as people in a family who's getting married, how they're feeling, their health, their love, their rituals. That's honestly all we spend time talking about.
2: Do you consider that you have real relationships with them and are they limited in some way or
0: yeah, how how can they not be? There's like literally eighty percent of my life that I don't talk about, and not because of a bad reason, but because we're living totally different lives and lifestyles. You know, when I got tenure, they were so happy for me, and I think it's because they knew that it was something I wanted. They didn't know what it was. Some of them had to look it up. When I got a Fulbright, they were
2: like, great, (laughs) you know, just because I was over the moon. So Pearl puts on the skirt and goes home. I hate, hate, hate wearing a skirt. Me
0: too. And you do it anyway? I don't hate wearing a skirt as much as I hate wearing stockings. <laughs> I hate stockings. And we've come to a point in my family where I don't wear it in the summer. And no one says anything anymore. They're cool. And and, and and I'm cool because I'm not wearing stockings.
2: She understands why all this stuff enrages me, but it just doesn't enrage her. She accepts these limitations. Do you ever have a real conversation with any one of these people? I'm going to Does repeat Does it ever get before. real? Yes. What do you mean real? Of
0: course it's real. I'm sitting with my niece, or my nephew, or my father, or my brothers, or their wives, and I'm talking to them. What's not real about it? I'm not not being real. You say something me.
2: real about your life? Because I feel like Everything. I never
0: say- everything. And they know not to ask certain things if they don't want the answer. They have taken questions back. Hmm. No, I'm I'm real, but I'm also really conscious of not hurting them. So there's certain things I choose, I choose not to talk about.
2: Why does she put up with it? Maybe it's the filmmaker in her, the ethnographer, doing her field work. She's willing to go to some length to make sure she keeps those connections, no matter what. Do you have to deny your own perspectives when you go toward the other side? No, you do
0: not deny your point of view by trying to build a bridge. That's the beauty of building bridges, is you put the outstretched hand, but you remain you. For me to walk into the Hasidic world, for me, and a lot of people do not agree with me, and I have absolute respect for them and I am not judging them, but for me, putting on a skirt is my outstretched hand. For me, making the time and knowing it's Shabbos I do Shabbos, but my way. And it doesn't look like that anymore. I let it look that way for the 72 hours that I'm in their world. And I am fully aware that it's on their terms. But I buy into that when I go there. And I go there knowing that I'm comfortable doing this for this amount of time, like I know my limits.
2: If soft shunning is a new concept to you, I hope that by now you understand what it is and why it continues and why hardly anyone talks about it. Netflix isn't going to buy your story if you're only soft shunned, because who wants to hear that story? That you put on a yarmulke or dress and you went to the wedding or bar mitzvah or bris and didn't talk about your life. But you also don't hear about soft shunning because it's not just don't ask, don't tell your family. It's also don't go broadcasting this to the whole world. The reason I had such a hard time finding OTD people who were willing to talk about this soft shunning was that the people who do have some contact with their family tend to be worried. What if they said something and someone in their family heard it? What if it hurt them or shamed them? It didn't seem worth risking that. Maybe the reason I'm willing to go public with these ideas is that I have some lingering fantasy that it might be possible for all of us to have a conversation about such things, a more honest conversation. At least some of my friends want that, too. The Baal
4: Shem Tov liked this Gemara and used to quote it very often. Rav Broka encounters Elijah the Prophet, Aliyah, and Abiyak in the marketplace. And he asks him, who in this marketplace is a Ben Olam Haba? Who is going to merit the world to come? So he says, those two people over there. Rabroka eagerly approaches them and he says, what is it that you guys do? Perhaps he was expecting, you know, we are great De chachamim, we're big balei tzedakah, we're very humble. Some of the qualities that we usually associate with a ben olam habo. They say, ana. we're clowns, we're jesters, we're comedians. When we see somebody who's sad here in the, in the marketplace, we cheer them up. And this merits them, the world to come, just because they cheer people up. They give them a place to feel good about themselves. To me, that's an extremely important principle and
2: a way of life. Yitzhak started a weekly get-together called Cholent, named after the truly delicious meat stew that gets served on Shabbos afternoons. I should just say that chillant is the one thing I miss about being orthodox. My goal is to make a safe place
4: for people to explore the other and express themselves.
2: It's actually more of a roving party, where people on both sides of orthodoxy can talk to each other without pretending. could mean
4: that they have left the fold, could mean that they're firmly in the fold. It could be people who are becoming religious, actually, or becoming Jewish. We have a lot of potential converts at times.
2: But even Yitzchak, as different as he is from his firm friends, even he found it hard at the beginning to truly listen to someone's OTD experience.
4: I remember at Shalom early on, somebody came over to me and she was discussing the fact that she finally broke free and she is now not observant. And I said, that's great. Mazel tov. Mazel tov. you're expressing yourself exactly. You are, as they say, living your truth. And then I said, but I feel a little bit bad that you had to uh, abandon from Kairi. Kind of. She got very upset with me. She was right. That thing that I feel uncomfortable, that's me. It's a challenge to my own belief um, and there's a, a little less comfort you know we used to be the same, exactly the same. and now in one way we're, we're not the same anymore. And then I apologized and I said, I'm very proud of you. If something doesn't work for you if it, I don't I, I, I'll put it this way. if there is a God, that God gives us a mind, a personality, to grasp and understand the world around us and its truths and falsehoods. And if that mind doesn't recognize God, then God can have no claim, no taina, no claim, because that's what the person was given. If somebody feels that they don't believe anymore and therefore uh, don't want to be observant somebody that i know and i knew them as religious it might bother me personally for a moment or, or two but i really am proud that the person is able to muster the strength to seek the truth seek their truth
2: Is this what I'm hoping for? For someone like Isaac to be able to say that he's proud of someone for leaving Orthodoxy? Shouldn't he be able to feel whatever he feels? On the other hand, there's not so many people like Isaac who even see the problem, who are trying to figure out how to do things differently, have a conversation where one side isn't trying to diagnose the other, where an Orthodox Jew can understand that it's no small feat breaking away, that we have reasons for feeling proud of ourselves, We have a perspective worth hearing, too. I didn't quite follow how he got to that point from thinking about God, but I'm fine with that. I can stand to listen to a little God talk from Isaac if he's willing to listen to someone who's just gone OTD talk about what it means to her. That doesn't sound like a lot, I'm aware, but it is. It's progress. Everyone bends, maybe slowly, maybe not all at once. But eventually,
1: I told my parents, we love you. We want to be a part of this family. We want to continue to see you, but we we can't do it like this. We just can't. I mean, you're putting up too many restrictions. My mother said, well, you know, does Jenny, my wife, does she want to come in a miniskirt? I mean, what do you think we're going to have over here? You know, we're going to have total, uh, total chaos. I said, no, obviously, she'll be respectful, but maybe she'll wear pants, maybe she'll wear a skirt, you know, to my parents' tremendous credit, I think. They weren't agreeable, and now we're able to go without all of these stipulations. Now, I still wear a yarmulke, and I make sure to wear a black yarmulke, you know, like a Lubavitch yarmulke. Again, I'm trying to be sensitive to my family's you know needs and, and, and um, feelings and at the same time they're trying to be sensitive to mine you know they still think at heart uh, what I did was wrong and that I'm doing the wrong thing but they love me and you know want to stay connected to me so we're able to have a family connection
5: you know I don't want to go into the intimate details of my relationship with my parents but I've seen signs of improvement I'm still shunned at this point in time. I I don't have access to my siblings, but uh, I can see things improving with time.
0: They're still working on it. It's under construction. It'll be under construction till my dying day, where they believe that there's still hope. And to me, that's a sign of love.
2: Shunning, that would be a way of giving up hope. But maybe, on the other hand, it would also be an odd kind of acceptance that this is who we are, who we really are. Heretic in the House is a production of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. It was written by me, Naomi Seidman. This episode was produced by M. Lewis Gordon and recorded by Lucien Lozon at MCS Studios Toronto, with theme music by Luke Allen and mixing by Corey Choi at Silver Sound NYC. Our senior producer is David C. Kalman. Subscribe to the show and look out for my next episode, where I dig into the cautionary tale the Orthodox world tells about us defectors. That wretched archetype we call a nebuch.
0: She nebuch lives alone. She nebuch doesn't have kids, only works all the time. She nebuch married an Anju.
2: I'm Naomi Seidman. Thanks for listening.